Hello and welcome to the Reformational Anglican Podcast, the podcast that delves into the riches of Reformational Anglicanism for the good of the church today. Uh, I'm your host, Sam Pilo. With me here is Ryan Scott. And to kick off today's episode, I'm going to like to read to you um, Robin Williams' Top 10 Reasons to be an Episcopalian. Good morning, Vietnam! So at number 10, he's got no snake handling. Uh, Number nine, you can believe in dinosaurs. Uh, Number eight, he says, male and female, God created them. Male and female, we ordain them. Uh, Number seven, you don't have to check your brains at the door. Uh, Number six, he's got pew aerobics. If you've been to a traditional Anglican service, you'll know all about that. Uh, Number five, he says, the church year is color-coded. Number four, free wine on Sundays. Uh, number three, all the pageantry, none of the guilt. Uh, number two, he says, you don't have to know how to swim to get baptized. Uh, and number one, he says, no matter what you believe, there's bound to be at least one other Episcopalian who agrees with you. I can't believe that somewhere in the appendices of common worship, there isn't a liturgy for snake handling. Uh, that's one for a general synod to work on. Yeah, I think we'll need to raise that as a motion. So Ryan, what do we make of um, how would we how would we assess uh, Robin Williams' uh, stance on, I guess, Anglican belief and unity? Well, you know, I guess uh, Robin Williams is clearly not uh, the only person who would think about Anglicanism in that kind of uh, those kind of terms. And uh, clearly, that you know that joke, those jokes kind of hit home because uh, he's picking up on a lot of a lot of true things there. But especially when you get to number one, there's no matter what you believe, there's bound to be another Episcopalian out there who agrees with you. Uh, I guess that really touches home with, you know, is there actually uh, a doctrinal standard to Anglicanism? Is there something coherent theologically that we actually believe and that we could point to? And so we thought we'd take this episode uh, today to talk a little bit about what we call the 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, you can find the 39 articles if you have a Book of Common Prayer and you uh, go to the back of the Book of Common Prayer, you'll find there the Articles of Religion, uh, or what we call the 39 Articles. And we're thinking a little bit today about whether or not the 39 Articles can actually serve uh, as the creed of Anglicanism, whether or not they have served that purpose in the past, and whether or not the 39 Articles are a good candidate uh, to serve the Anglican Church today as kind of our creed or our statement of faith. So we'll maybe chat through this a little bit. And first of all, let's think about, um, you know, should we even have a creed to start off with? Uh, Why would we bother having a creed? And I guess the reason why we might want to have a creed or a statement of faith is because uh, the Bible places a great deal of emphasis on having our minds renewed uh, according to God's truth and to make sure that our minds are renewed and not conformed to sort of the pattern of this world. And in order to help us with that process, uh, you know, Ephesians 4 tells us uh, that Christ has given gifts to the church, uh, gifts of of ministers and and Bible teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets. And the whole purpose of um, the Lord giving us uh, these people is for the building up of the body of Christ until we all maintain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so that's what the Lord Jesus wants for his church. He wants us to be united in what we believe 
and he wants us to have a mature knowledge uh, of who he is as the son of God. And so in order to do that, we need to know who God is. We need to know who Christ is. And we need to know what does it mean to be a Christian and what does it mean to be saved. And uh, in order to sort of think through these questions clearly, I think we need to you know, get out on paper what is it that we believe uh, about these subjects and then make sure that as we, you know, we get those answers out on paper uh, to be checking ourselves, are the answers that were given to these questions, are they actually biblical? Um, and if they're not, then we can you know, assess them over and against scripture and try and come to a greater understanding. But clearly, um, lots of people have done this in the past, and that's why we have some of the statements of faith, the confessions of faith. And so we can have a bit of interaction with them, ask the confessions of faith, are they biblical? And the confessions of faith, and they challenge us um, to think whether or not the assumptions that we have about God, about Christ, about what it means to be a Christian, whether or not those assumptions are biblical. Yeah, as you say, the church has always written uh, creeds or confessions or, or uh, summaries of uh, of the faith. Um, that goes all the way back to even the Apostles' Creed is a great example of something that's that's distilled down. What are the uh, how would you explain uh, what the church believes in as few words as possible? And then, obviously, as time goes on, you have controversies in the early church. Uh, so that the creeds work as a as a summary, but they also work as a way of excluding error. And so, you know, so what do we what do we believe about the Trinity? What do we believe about Christology? Um, and it's not that we're going beyond scriptures; that we're digging deeply into scripture, make sure we're speaking uh, faithfully and consistently about those things. That that involves formulating things like the creeds that use non-biblical terminology to try and carefully define uh, the words that are in the Bible. Make sure we're using them uh, consistently and faithfully. Uh, we're not just right. uh, nitpicking. Uh, do you know the expression, every heretic has his verse? Uh, I don't think I've come across that before. Do go on. So just that, that um, often a lot, you know, a lot of the early church heresies come from uh, a particular impulse or a particular... Uh, you know, so oh, we know that that God is one, uh, and then you run with that, and you end up with something like modalism, or you know, some sort of heresy that that's so focused on God's oneness that that it excludes the 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 multi-personal nature of of the Godhead in the Trinity, mm. uh, or or God is three, and you run with that so much that you end up with with tritheism. Uh, so the creeds were the, were the church's way of saying, well, what, this is what this is how we understand God's oneness. This is how we understand God's threeness, for example, or how we understand how Jesus is human and divine and you have to go beyond the words of scripture in order to say in order to define uh what those words what those words mean yeah and the church yeah. has the church has uh, has always done that there's a great book we seem to always endorse non-anglican authors here um there's a great book by carl truman uh called the creedal imperative uh, where he sets out the argument from scripture you know um that the church is supposed to is supposed to do this the church is supposed to produce these uh these summaries these guardrails uh, you even see you see Paul talking, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, saying, you know, um, protect the uh, or pass on the, um, uh, the the pattern of sound words that I taught you. So not just the message, but but actually particular articulations of it that have been that have been helpful, that are that are faithful. Uh, and you even see that is it is it First Corinthians uh, fourteen or fifteen? Yeah, First Corinthians fifteen, where Paul seems to be referring to a creed that had developed in the early church that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Yeah, so that that impulsive writing creeds of writing 
uh, summaries that help us to uh, to quickly say this is what the church holds to, this is what she definitely doesn't hold to. Uh, that's a good impulse to to scripturally. Uh, it's actually scripturally mandated. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And as well, I think creeds, in a sense, are kind of inevitable. I think the question a lot of times is whether or not they're formally written down and expressed, or whether or not they're just sort of there informally in the background. Um, it's a little bit it's similar in some ways to the liturgy. Like every church has a liturgy. Every church has something that it keeps kind of returning to. And I think even churches that really want to stress, we hold the Bible alone. Well, actually, I think if you dig down a little bit deeper, you know, there, there is, there's a pattern of, of doctrine here. There's, there's even a way of speaking that they use to express that doctrine. And the question isn't whether or not we have a creed or we don't have a creed. The question is whether or not we've actually formally sat down and thought about our creeds in a way that's, you know, coherent. Well, I guess that raises the question then, does the Third and Articles function as uh, as the English creed, as, we, as we've entitled our episode, uh, as the, the doctrinal basis for Anglicanism? Is it, is it a good candidate? Uh, historically, has it really been treated like that? Um, some people obviously dispute that. And is it still helpful to use it that way today? Yeah, and, and thinking about this question, um, I think, so Philip Schaff is helpful. Um, he church historian Philip Schaff, and he's you know written all sorts of stuff. He wrote all sorts of stuff about the creeds, um, of the church, and he says that a creed or rule of faith or symbol is a confession of faith for public use or a form of words setting forth with authority certain articles of belief which are regarded by the framers as necessary for salvation or at least for the well-being of the Christian church. And I think uh, when you look at that definition and you look at the intent of the 39 articles, it clearly seems to be the case that at least for the those who wrote the 39 articles, they intended the 39 articles to be a confession of faith or to be a creed to be used within the church. And actually, the very first uh, commentary that was written on the 39 articles was entitled an English, The English Creed uh, by Thomas Rogers. And so uh, and that that commentary actually was written in the same century that the articles themselves were written, and so we can see sort of very early on uh, the thirty nine articles were regarded by those who wrote them and and set them forth as authoritative for the church as the English creed, as the statement of faith that the whole of the Church of England was to subscribe to and to agree to, and they wanted to make sure that there was no teaching within the church that in any way departed from the 39 articles or contradicted the 39 articles. I guess we should think then maybe about some of the uh, objections, because there are objections um, to whether or not the 39 articles are a creed. And I think uh, on these objections, G.I. Packer, uh, who recently uh, went to be with the Lord, G.I. Packer is really helpful, I think, on some of these uh, objections. So he, he lists a number of them, and he says, first of all, that um, the articles claim to be what the ecumenical creeds are. So the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, uh, the articles claim to be what the ecumenical creeds are, and they actually claim to exercise the same kind of authority that those early church creeds do. And then he lists a number of arguments against this idea that the articles are a creed. He says, to the argument that they are not a creed because they are not a complete body of divinity, it is enough to reply that complete or not they contain a good deal more than the ecumenical creeds themselves do. To the argument that they are not a creed, 
because they include statements on Anglican domestic order and discipline, one need only say that this means that they are more than a creed, not less. To the argument that they are not a creed because they were sought partly with a political motive, uh, well, this is answered by the consideration that exactly the same is true of the Nicene Creed. The fact remains, Packer says, that the 39 Articles exhibit not only the same doctrine as other Reformation confessions do, but also the same concern to identify the faith they confess with the faith of the Fathers and the New Testament. Like the rest of the Reformation confessions, the Articles are a domestic creed and their authority must be understood accordingly. So the Articles are... Uh, I think I think Packer has the... Um, hits the nail on the head, really. Um, the Articles function as a creed they're intended to function as a creed uh they have some um some extra stuff about about uh what does he call it Engli- uh church order um yeah domestic again, I mean, political issues yeah um I, th- I mean the church has always done that you know a lot of the church councils as well as um producing creeds and statements of faith they passed canon laws uh to govern uh the church's the church's order um so i don't think that's really without without precedent either yeah. And some people, um, I think another objection you might hear sometimes is just the, the language of the articles is a little bit strange. It's not, you know, if we were trying to com- to compose a statement of faith or confession of faith today, we probably wouldn't use some of the language that it, it uses. Um, but this is not, I think this is also just the, the form of English that was being used at the time. I mean, even if you look at like the Belgic confession of faith, um, again, it has some sort of similar tones about um, um, about the, the way that they express the doctrine of the time. Uh, and one of the theories, I think, is that um, during that early period, within the 16th century, spoken English and written English um, hadn't diverged as much as they, they did in subsequent centuries. And so the way that uh, theologians wrote things down at that time was just a little bit um, different to the way that we might do so now. So we'll maybe think a little bit about the the development of the the articles you were talking about. Uh, you quoted Packer about the uh, I guess the political impetus uh, to the articles being written. I think there's probably quite a lot of there's probably quite a lot of misunderstanding about this actually. Um, so I think people think you know the the Church of England is the way it is because of Henry and his uh, his falling out with the Pope, his wanting a, a divorce or an annulment. Actually, if you look at the Henrican uh, Reformation, you know, Henry wasn't. Henry wasn't really a a Protestant as we would understand it. You know, he fell out with the Pope. He rejected the Pope's authority over the English Church. Over, um, rejected the idea of the Pope having any jurisdiction in in Henry's kingdom. But if you look, you know, Henry breaks with Rome in well fifteen thirty four. Uh, he he passed a a doctrinal standard called the Ten Articles in fifteen thirty six, and it's it's basically traditionally medievally Roman Catholic. Uh, 1539 he passes the six articles which are even stronger uh, on that front and actually carried you know carried things uh, carried really severe penalties so you could be uh, you could face the death penalty for teaching against transubstantiation um there's things like the king's book and the bishop's book as well henry henry didn't leave rome and instantly become uh, a full-blooded um calvinist or lutheran uh, he basically became a Catholic, where he was he was the Pope of his own little church. Interestingly, though, I think you know Henry's got a keen political mind. He sees what's going on in, in uh, I guess, France, Switzerland, Germany. Um, he knows he's going to need some uh, 
some allies. And so Henry was sending uh, delegations over to Germany, having uh, German delegations come over to him. Uh, and so he sent Cranmer, his, his Archbishop of Canterbury, um, to meet with some of the some of the Lutheran reformers. Uh, and, and Cranmer was obviously deeply impressed by by the Lutherans. Uh, and so it seems that he's um, he's come away from those meetings, uh, not just taking away Luther's uh, yes Luther's view and justification, but actually uh, some of some of Cranmer's later work is really derivative on things like the Augsburg Augsburg Confession. Really, you don't get uh, anything like the Thirty Nine Articles until uh, Henry dies and is replaced by Edward the Sixth. So that's um, fifteen forty seven. So what thirteen years after England breaks from Rome, you get you have Edward the Sixth, the the boy prince, uh, England's England's Josiah comes to the throne, uh, and Cranmer's finally let loose. You know these English reformed bishops are finally let loose to to reform the Church of England. Interestingly, the the articles are not the first thing they publish. They they publish prayer books. They publish uh, books of homilies. They don't publish the forty two articles for uh, five or six years. A lot of people think that's because Cranmer was holding off. He was he was networking. He's writing to Calvin. He's writing to uh, Luther and Melanchthon. Cranmer's holding out hope for a unified Protestant confession, uh, and so he doesn't. Uh, he sort of pumps the brakes on the writing of an English confession, but it seems by about. Uh, 1549, uh, Cranmer had had started working on something like the uh, the 42 Articles, which are the precursor to um, the 39 Articles. There's a bit of there's a bit of uh, so Cranmer wrote these 42 Articles. They were passed by by a synod by a convocation in, in 1553. There's actually a little bit of dispute as to whether or not that actually took place, whether they were actually presented to the convocation. Part of the uh, Part of the dispute is around is the, the dispute is fueled by the fact that the minutes of the convocation were destroyed by the Great Fire of London uh, in 1666. Uh, but if you look at, uh, I think Martin Davy gives a really good argument that that it, that it was actually was actually passed by the convocation. Um, people writing close to the time seem to just assume that it's been passed. Unfortunately, the the 42 articles were passed in uh, March of 1553, and King Edward died uh, on the 6th of July that year. Um, so they were in effect for a few months. Uh, Edward dies and then Mary, his sister, uh, Bloody Mary, ascended to the throne. Uh, Mary's a, a traditional Roman Catholic. She's, you know, Henry, but but worse. And she, she rules back the, the English Reformation, uh, makes, makes England Roman Catholic again, has, has a load of the reformers executed, loads of the English reformers end up fleeing to the continent. Uh, and Mary's uh, in the throne for about five years, and then uh, I just want to say thankfully, uh, mercifully she she dies and is replaced by uh, by her half sister Elizabeth. Uh, they're all half sisters because of Henry's uh, serial monogamy. Um, all half siblings, rather. Uh, so, so in 1558, Elizabeth ascends to the throne, and they pa- they pass something called the Eleven Articles. As a bit of a stopgap, basically to to justify the the Church of England's autonomy from Rome, things like that. Um, but basically, Elizabeth uh, tasked her her Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Archbishop Parker, uh, with producing a, a set of articles for the English Church. Parker, for some reason, he didn't just pick up the forty two articles and run with them. Uh, he, uh, he started reworking them. Um, so by by January of fifteen sixty three, Parker presents. Uh, his his modified document of the forty two articles uh, to 
various committees, they're chopped and changed. Uh, and then by February of that year, you've got the 39 articles in uh, almost their completed form. So it's funny, the the, uh, the convocation the committees, they basically worked out these 39 articles. And then it went to the Queen to be signed off by, uh, to receive royal assent. Uh, and the Queen actually removed one of the articles completely. Uh, she removed Article 29 about um, how the wicked don't receive Christ in the Eucharist. So essentially... Uh, ruling out any sort of bodily presence of Christ in the in the supper. Uh, it seems like Queen Elizabeth vetoed that uh, because she was still holding out for uh, a diplomatic relations with the Lutherans. Uh, they also removed some stuff from uh, from Cranmer's forty two articles about uh, kind of weird Anabaptist eschatology, things like that, simply because they weren't as relevant as they had been when Cranmer had written it. Uh, and they added in some, they filled in some gaps, so they added in a. A whole article about the personhood of the of the Holy Spirit. They borrowed, so they filled in some gaps, basically borrowing from the the latest uh, Lutheran uh, confessions. Um, but really, it's it, it's significantly Cranmer's thought. There's uh, for reasons we'll not go into involving Puritans. They ended up uh, republishing the articles in 1571, eight years later, and they were they were very slightly reworked. But they're essentially. Uh, even so, there was an act passed in 1571 requiring assent to the articles, and it refers to them to refers to them as the articles of uh, 1563 because they're they're essentially the same. Uh, actually, my my fun fact of the week: uh, I was reading um, reading Martin Davy on this, and he he quotes the uh, the act that required a subscription by all clergy to the to the articles, and then the act it talks about the articles which were written. Which were agreed by convocation uh, in the year of our Lord one thousand five hundred and sixty-two. Obviously, the articles were published in sixty-three. Uh, so he's got an explanatory note. He says the articles referred to here are, are the thirty-eight articles of fifteen sixty-three. They are dated to fifteen sixty-two because until seventeen fifty-two, the new year began on twenty-fifth of March, and so what we know as February fifteen sixty-three was for Elizabeth Elizabethans February fifteen sixty-two. So that's a uh, that's something very peculiar about history I learned this week. Well, you certainly have a lot of fun facts for us um, there, Sam, so that was very interesting. I think, I mean, what really interests me about this as well is that um, even quite late on, it's clear that Cranmer and others within the um, English Reformation are still trying to f- hold out hope for you know a, a united uh, Protestant uh, sort of perspective, a united Protestant confession. And I think most Protestants today would look back at the Reformation, would really celebrate, um, you know, so much of the Reformation. But I think most of us would probably kind of wish, you know, why why couldn't we have had unity between the Reformed camp and the Lutheran camp? You know, it's, it seems kind of sad that we did split um, quite early on in that kind of way. So I think it's really, um, it's really lovely as as Anglicans that we can look back and see actually in our tradition, in our history, there's this real desire to have uh, a kind of ecumenical uh, united protestant uh, perspective quite early on so i think that's something that's uh, that we can look back to with pride really that would be an ecumenical matter uh, i guess in terms of the theology of the articles the, the-, the theology of the articles uh, similar to what we we've said before about the theology of anglicanism uh, the theology is protestant it's reformed it's catholic and uh, there are these patristic elements in them as well. And it seems that they want to put forward this kind of reformed Catholic perspective, uh, which distances itself both from corruptions that they would see that have come from the Roman Catholic Church and from the papacy, 
on one hand, and then they also want to distance themselves uh, perhaps equally as much from the errors of the Anabaptist radical reformation. So do you want to tell us a bit more about the theology of the article, Sam? Sure. Well, I've got uh, I've got some notes here. Um, sort of rated uh, Tim Patrick's book on the things called Anglican Foundations. Uh, you can get it from Latimer Press, Latimer Latimer Trust. Uh, so he he helpfully breaks it down. I think this is pretty typical for how people break down the the articles. Uh, he he's got uh, articles one through eight. Uh, he calls them. He says the creedal and biblical orthodoxy. So things like uh, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in a sort of orthodox Chalcedonian Christology. Uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe in in Scripture as our final authority. So those are really um, we're we're Catholic. We're, we're Christians. Uh, that's also it's also a guard against I guess the Anabaptists who uh, the Anabaptists or radical reformers. They 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 were rejecting the um, the innovations of Rome, but they ended up rejecting you know fifteen hundred years of church history, and it really was just me and my Bible, and they questioned. Uh, everything and really threw out a lot of uh, orthodoxy. So the articles one through eight really just we're Catholic, we're Christian, we believe what Christians have uh, have always believed. And then nine through eighteen, uh, Patrick's got them here as as salvation. Uh, so you've got your doctrine of sin, justification by by faith alone. Uh, you've got the article on predestination, um, and then good good works. The role of good works. The good works are are a fruit, not a root of justification. You can't you can't uh, add to your justification through uh, extra good works, things like that. Um, so those are those are really distinctly uh, Protestant as opposed to Roman Catholic. It's all justification by faith alone, and and the things that come along with that. Uh, then he's got uh, articles nine nineteen through to twenty five. He ca- he calls them the, the church articles. So you've got ecclesiology. Uh, you've got an article on the the authority of church councils. Uh, so the church can hold councils, but they're uh, they only have authority insofar as um, they faithfully teach scripture. It's a uh, it's a derived authority. Um, things like the 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 authority of the church to change her her rites, her liturgies. It's really a justification for the Church of England uh, rejecting the the Roman Mass and coming up with their own liturgy. Things like that. So the church doesn't have to have one centralized liturgy that's all the same. National churches can change their liturgies. Uh, worship should be in the language of the people. And then Articles uh, twenty six to thirty one. Uh, are all about the sacraments, and this is really where you see the the reformed, particularly reformed, as opposed to Lutheran influence coming through. So you've got baptism, the Lord's Supper. It's only two, only two sacraments listed, of course, and you've got uh, that that view of uh, Christ is present in the supper, but he's not present physically. He's not present bodily under the uh, the bread and wine. Rather, he's present spiritually. So that rules out things like. Uh, Keeping the bread and the wine for for adoration, um, uh, things like that, and, and obviously Article Twenty Nine on uh, Christ isn't bodily present; he's received by faith, and so the faithful don't receive Christ in any sense. The faithless, rather, don't receive Christ in any sense. Uh, then Articles uh, Thirty Two to Thirty Six are more articles on the on the Church on ecclesiology. So you've got things like uh, the necessity of ordination, so someone can't simply decide they're going to be a minister; they have to be ordained, uh, called by the the church collectively you've got uh, a rejection of clerical celibacy uh, you've got uh, an article on the role of tradition and there's an article endorsing the book of homilies the books of homilies as well uh, and then articles 37 through 39 uh, tim patrick lists them as uh, under the heading of civics uh, so how do christians engage with the civil authorities 
really just things like if, if a Christian breaks the law, that they, they are in fact subject to the the law of the land. Um, doesn't just go through the church courts. There, there's kind of dealing with how do how do we live as Christians in a um, in a in a civil society? Uh, you've got Christians in private property. Some of the some of the Anabaptists really um, took a particular reading of of the early chapters and Acts and decided that Christian property was was common. The Thurian articles don't take that stand, so they they say Christians have Christians still still hold on to the rights of their private property. Uh, but of course, Christian charity and uh, generosity are meant to uh, to shape how we uh, how we utilize those things. And then the last ones on Christians and and oath swearing. So the Anabaptists, and you see this in um, Quakers and things would would take a a particular reading of, of when Jesus says, you know, that your yes be yes and your no no. They'd be opposed to any sort of oath swearing. So the third article say um, Christians can swear oaths if it's required of them for uh, for legal reasons for court, for example. So that's under civics. So that, that's a that's not exhaustive, um, but that's a it's a rundown of the. The theology of um, of the Thurman Articles. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you, Sam. Um, so as, as we move forward with this podcast, we're going to have uh, some more episodes, and I think uh, you know we'd we'd love to have have episodes where we uh, take an article itself and, and just chat through the theology of it. Um, so you know, there's an awful lot that was packed in there, uh, but we hope to to go through some of those things bit by bit. So let's think a little bit about the benefit of the articles today. And for me, I'll just list some of the things why, you know, I love the 39 articles um, and how I think they can be important to us today. Uh, first of all, I think the articles are wonderfully balanced. So on the subject of predestination, for example, uh, it, put forwards, it, it puts forward the statement on predestination. Uh, and then it clarifies that the purpose of the doctrine of predestination uh, it isn't for wild speculation about things that we can't really know about, uh, and it isn't for debating uh, the doctrine. No, the purpose of the doctrine of predestination is to give us comfort. Uh, it comforts us. And so we need uh, the doctrine of predestination for that comfort that God wants to give us in his word. Uh, and secondly, it avoids the error of making uh, predestination into some kind of a grid uh, through which we read other parts of scripture. So it actually says in the doctrine on predestination, it says we must receive God's promises in such a way as they are generally set forth in scripture. So let's say you're reading a text that emphasizes human responsibility, or you're reading about God's love for the world, God's desire uh, that all be saved. We don't sort of filter those texts through the grid of predestination. Um, as I think some Calvinists maybe have a temptation to do later on. And so I think there's there's a real wonderful balance here. It sets forth biblically the doctrine of predestination, but it wants to say the purpose of it is to comfort us and to we, you know, alongside the doctrine, we need to receive God's promises in such a way as they're generally set forth. Another uh, benefit, I think, to the articles is that uh, they're they're broad enough that that we don't need a whole load of exception clauses to them. So later on, you'll get to the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 17th century. And I think by the time you get to that uh, stage, the Reformed churches have become somewhat narrower than what they were in the 16th century. And you have this very detailed confession of faith. Uh, but one of the problems that that leads to is that not all sort of Presbyterians are able to sign absolutely every detail of it because they don't exactly see the different points in scripture. 
And so they have to come up with all these lists of exceptions. And to me, whenever I look at that sort of thing, I think, well, to me, that's a sign that your confession of faith is probably too narrow if in order to try and find unity around this confession of faith, you actually just need to list a lot of you know exception clauses to it. But having said that, uh, the articles are appropriately broad, but they're not minimalist at the same time. They're actually, you know, they're comprehensive enough and they outline, as Sam was telling us, they outline an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, they tell us about the classical uh, Christian view of who God is and the identity of Christ. Uh, they deal really with all the major issues of the Reformation. And I think whenever you read the book, um, when you read the articles in dialogue with the homilies and the Book of Common Prayer, you actually have a pretty clear, uh, rich, uh, comprehensive theology for us to to grapple with and to sink our teeth into. And so I think that theology is really as relevant um, today as when it was written. Yeah, I think it's it's important to note as well. Not only is it relevant, um, the articles are still enforced today as the as the the official doctrinal standards of uh, of many churches. So in the Church of England canons, you know, Canon A five says that uh, the doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in in the Holy Scriptures, uh, in such teachings of the early Church fathers and councils of the Church as are agreeable to said Scriptures. Uh, in particular, such doctrines to be found in the thirteen articles of religion, uh, as well as the Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal. Uh, if you look at the Church of Ireland uh, Constitution, uh, when the Church of Ireland was was disestablished uh, one hundred and fifty one years ago, I think, you know, it it, it in, a for, in constituting itself uh, as a disestablished as an independent church, it lists the third articles as its doctrinal standard. Um, and then even more recently, if you look at something like the Jerusalem Declaration from the first GAFCON meeting, the Jerusalem Declaration uh, point four says we uphold the third articles as containing the true doctrine of the church, agreeing with God's word, and as authoritative for Anglicans today. Um, now that's you know the Jerusalem Declaration has been signed by. Uh, bishops and archbishops and primates from all around the world, and particularly places like Nigeria, where I think Nigeria is the second biggest Anglican Anglican province by by membership, could be the biggest in terms of uh, attendance. So, you know, the Thurian Articles are still uh, still enforced and still still cherished and and gladly confessed by by probably a majority of, of Anglicans worldwide. Another benefit um, for the articles really, I think, come uh, for us as sort of, we would both describe ourselves as evangelical Anglicans, but for sort of evangelical Anglicans or Anglican evangelicals, whatever you want to put the emphasis on, um, sometimes, you know, the question is, well, what actually is um, an Anglican evangelical? Uh, we have uh, within the Church of England, we've open evangelicals, we've conservative evangelicals, we've charismatic evangelicals, we've Catholic evangelicals. Um, so this word evangelical uh, even within the Anglican context, is something that can, you know, be a, a very broad thing. It's hard to know what actually is an evangelical. And as evangelical Anglicans, there are a number of different uh, sort of doctrinal bases, uh, bases, maybe I should say, uh, that we've put forward to sort of say, here's what we believe. Um, so you might look to the UCCF one, um, or the Church of England's Evangelical Council. Uh, they have one as well, um, and there are other ideas about what. Um, you know, what essential beliefs are there to evangelicalism? But Lee Gatiss, in his book, um, Reformed Foundations, he, I think, really helpfully says that uh, at the very least, an Anglican evangelical ought to be Anglican. 
by which I mean they ought to believe the 39 Articles. And he says this is something the previous generations of evangelicals uh, really insisted upon. So I think during this uh, time that we're in, uh, where you know there's lots of us who who claim to be Anglican evangelicals, well, what actually does that mean? I think here's a really firm basis for us to root our theology in uh, the 39 Articles. And if we do that, uh, it's clear that we have the same orthodox doctrine of God, the same view of salvation, and all the rest of it. And then more generally for you know, the Anglican Communion, for those of us who claim to be uh, evangelicals, or claim to be Anglican, sorry, um, you know, what do we think Anglicanism is? Do we think it's a coherent theological perspective? Or we do, do we think it's just refers to anyone who is in some way connected with the Anglican Communion? And I think this kind of gets back to Robin Williams' sort of statement um, at, at the start of the, the programme. And it probably is true that if you asked maybe 100 different Anglicans, what does it mean to be Anglican? Uh, you might well get nearly 100 different um, answers. And probably the most uh, common answer uh, might be that we are, aren't are exactly Roman Catholics, but we do still have a bishop and we do still have um, a liturgy. And those are definitely really important things that we would want to uphold and we'd say, yeah, those are definitional of Anglicanism. Uh, and the most common answer might be, you know, this idea of lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing. And absolutely, we would want to affirm that as well. Uh, what we see in the liturgy, what we see in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, our beliefs are set forth in our prayers. Uh, as we approach God in prayer, you see really clearly what do we actually believe about God by the way that we approach him in prayer. But clearly, uh, Thomas Cranmer, who compiled uh, the Book of Common Prayer, didn't believe that the Book of Common Prayer was itself a sufficient confession of faith. And that's the reason why he gave us. Uh, the 39 articles to go along with the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, we can actually have a coherent theological perspective uh, on what Anglicanism is and a coherent Christian piety that reflects that perspective. So any last thoughts, Sam, before we wrap up the show today? I think that'll probably do us for today. We've we've gone on for uh, a little bit longer than usual. Um, just to say thanks to all our listeners again uh, for sticking with us. Um, we get to see some of the some of the stats in Anchor, and we've got we've got listeners from Australia and Belgium and and all sorts of places. Um, so that's that's encouraging and, and humbling. Um, and hopefully this is a, a blessing to you. We're trying to put up a, a podcast every every Tuesday, so you can check in every Tuesday for that. Uh, we've also got an email address, uh, reformationalanglican at gmail.com, So you can uh, feel free to fire us an email. If you look in the show notes as well, I'll put a link where you can you can send us a voicemail uh, if you want to send in. A message, a question, a, a complaint, whatever it is, um, you can you can click the link. You can send us a, a voice message. Uh, we do reserve the right to play that on the show, so uh, you've been warned. Um, but but please do get in touch. Great. Well, we hope that um, if you've enjoyed uh, the show today, you'll maybe uh, pick up your book of common prayer if you have one, um, and certainly try and give uh, the articles a little bit of a read. But I thought uh, as we finish the show today, why don't we pray, as we often do, and we will pray a collect uh, from the Book of Common Prayer. This is the one actually for Whit Sunday. So let's pray. God, who at the time of Pentecost did teach the hearts of thy faithful people by the sending to them the light of thy Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort through the merits of Christ Jesus our Saviour, who liveth and reigneth with thee, 
in the unity of the same spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.